0: Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. I'm just going to do a real quick shout out before we introduce the guest, let you know about the book club. We've got Uncle Bob Martin showing up. And we're going to be talking about his book, Clean Architecture, for the next two months. You can go to topenddevscom book club and sign up for that. The first call is December 7th, but we're going to be recording them. So if you, if you pay to be part of the book club, then you can get the recordings too. We have a special guest this week, and that is Gavin Morris. Did I say that right, Gavin?
1: Gavin Morris or Morris, depending on which part of Scotland you come from, but yeah.
0: I gotcha. Do you say it Maurice then? Maurice, yeah. Okay. And yeah, we brought you on to talk about this technique that you're using called conditional get requests. To be honest, I'm not sure if I completely have my head around it. So I'm I'm looking forward to kind of getting some clarity and talking about it. But before we do that, do you want to just introduce yourself, let people know who you are and why you rock?
1: Sure. So my name is Gavin Maurice. I'm a senior Ruby engineer at Cookpad. For those of you that don't know, Cookpad is the largest online recipe platform and our mission is to make everyday cooking fun. For the last year, I think most of my work has being centered around performance optimization and making sure that we can continue mm-hmm. to provide a good good experience as we scale.
0: Cool. So, so you're the scaling guy over at Cookpad, which is this tiny website that that lots of people use. Now, I'm kind of curious as we get into this. I'm assuming that you've, I guess found all the low-hanging fruit that you can for performance. And so now you're you're getting into some of the stuff that most people haven't tried, like the con- conditional get request. Do you want to just give us the 10,000-foot view as far as maybe what the problem you were trying to solve was or, or how this came up? And then from there, go into what cond- conditional get requests are and how you're using them?
1: Sure. I would say by no means have we picked all the low-hanging fruit, but What we were trying to do or what we were set out to do was come up with a collection of tools or techniques that our engineers can implement in order to improve performance. Uh, we decided that rather than have an individual person or an individual team whose focus was performance, it would be better if each, you know, product team had their own mm-hmm. their own goals and targets for performance and their own techniques for improving performance when it was required. So, really, what I was doing was investigating different techniques that we can try and reporting back on how useful they were, what the caveats were, and that sort of thing.
0: I gotcha. So is this something that you came up with on your own or is this something you found somewhere?
1: It's not something I came up with on my own. It's it's one of these strange features of HTTP and of Rails that has been around for a very long time. and. Almost nobody really pays attention to it. And that's why I thought it was something interesting to, to write about once we've done it as well. So maybe it would be helpful if I gave a bit of an insight into what conditional mm-hmm. get requests are and how they're used. So, Sounds good to me. So HTTP conditional requests, basically requests that are executed differently depending on the value of specific headers that are sent with the request. So the, the headers contain what we refer to as a precondition. And the response of the request will be different depending on whether that precondition is met or not. So I guess in more plain terms, what that means is depending on the value of a header, the server will either return a 200 success with the the full body payload or a bodiless response, just the head, with a 304 not modified and the the client, oh, okay. which is you know the, the mobile application or the, the browser, the client should be smart enough to recognize that the that 304 not modified response means that you can just take the, the previous response body that you have stored in your local cache and load that. So so what's the, the advantage of doing this? Well, you're you're sparing bandwidth, you're not having to send the whole body back with the response payload and so by just pulling the response out of the local cache you get the content to the user quicker
0: i gotcha i think i've seen this i think somebody explained this to me as like e-tags um, I, I just kind of had a passing a passing setup where it was like hey here's a key do you match the key yep done send it back
1: it's effectively that there's uh, a little bit more nuance and complexity there but yeah effectively every with a vanilla rail setup Every response will Mm be uh, sent back with an e-tag header. And if you send another response to the same endpoint with the same e-tag in a header called uh, if none match, then you should just receive the 304 not modified response back. The issue is, though, that you're not really saving much using the the Rails default setup because your action is still going to run all the database queries and it's still going to render the view before getting to the point where it decides that the response would have been the same. And so, you know, returns that 304. So what I wanted to look at was how can we actually use this feature to reduce the amount of database queries that we were executing and reduce the amount of time mm-hmm. spent rendering before we decide whether our resource is is fresh or stale.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've always just used the default etag setup and just assumed it was saving me a whole bunch of work. What you're telling me is is it's not.
1: It's not typically because it's still going to go through all of the work of uh-huh. loading things from the database and rendering right. it. So Rails actually provides bandwidth. Yes. You save bandwidth, and depending on things like cache control headers and stuff, you might save a little bit in uh, the response time. But you're not really using the feature to its full advantage.
2: Yeah, you're. you're I'm all disappointed. Yeah,
1: sorry. I'm sorry to be a downer. The good news is that Rails does provide some helper methods that make it super easy to actually implement this in a way that can be quite productive. So in the the blog post that I wrote about this, the the method that we used is called uh, stale question mark a predicate method and Mm -hmm. really how you use that method is you're saying if the e-tag value is stale do all the work defined in this conditional block otherwise rails will automatically return a three or four not modified response so that's how you really get the benefit of this feature by doing as little work as possible to establish whether or not the resource is stale and if it is stale then doing all of the kind of time-consuming work within that block
0: I got gotcha. you. So effectively, it's like a guard clause. That's the, but it has an else, and the else is do all the work.
1: Effectively, it's a condition, and that's why that's why they call them. A, part of the reason why it's called conditional get requests.
0: So, what part of this is the HTTP or yeah, the HTTP spec? Is that just the E tag?
1: So I'm probably going to get fact checked on this, but I believe. <laughs> Snopes article. I believe the the concept of conditional get requests is in the original, it's in HTTP 1.0. The e-tags and the last modified header, the e-tag and the if modified since header, that was added in HTTP 1.1. So we're going back quite a while since these have been supported in the HTTP specification. Gotcha. So, I mean, it
0: sounds pretty simple.
1: It is simple. The devil's in the detail. though. There are quite a few pitfalls. So yeah, you get the the same kind of problems that you would expect to come into contact with when you are implementing caching, problems with determining whether a resource is actually fresh or stale. When I was first implementing the experiment to, to trial this feature, my PR included some issues that would have introduced edge cases where we would have been sending stale content to users it was thankfully one of my uh, teammates spotted one of these edge cases and mentioned it in the PR we were able to catch it before we released it but yeah I think the the real difficulty is in the discussion of whether or not something is actually fresh or stale and within the within the definition of conditional requests there's the idea of strong and weak validation. And so that's kind of a, a further point where you really have to decide how do you want this to behave? What do you want the experience to be for the users? So the differences between those, a strong validation is saying that the response body has to have a byte for byte exact match for the, the previous response. Mm-hmm. But the weak validation, that's what is referred to as a semantic equivalence. So what are the cases where a client can use a previous response that's not identical to the one that we would have served this time, but one that's close enough that we can just say, yeah, use that one. And obviously there's the performance advantage of doing that, but then you run into the problem of, well, what if you're sending them, uh, what if they're using stale content?
2: Mm-hmm. For the purpose of, you know, like a little easier to understand, do you happen to have like, you know, an example off the top of your head? I mean, I get theoretically how it would be used to be maybe nice to have like an example of where like, I have equivalent data, but it's different than what I would have gotten this
1: time. Sure, suppose you have an e-commerce site and there's a feature where users are able to download a receipt and the receipts in a PDF format. Mm -hmm. So they click a button, server generates PDF and they download it and the footer of the receipt has a timestamp that says when it was generated. Well, if they go back to that endpoint and request that resource a second time, then each line item from the receipt would be the same the tax might be the same, the, the totals would be the same. The only part of that that would be different is the timestamp at the bottom. And in a case like that, you could make the determination that that's actually a good thing or we don't care if that timestamp is the same. And so in that scenario, you could say these two documents are semantically equivalent, so it's fine to use the cached value of that. Awesome, thanks. Obviously there are other cases where you want the content to be completely fresh or exactly the same. Every time, and it really is a judgment call.
0: So, how do you start making that judgment call? Because, I mean, the in the case of like the generated at timestamp or things like that, that that seems pretty obvious. But are are there somewhere it's a little? muddier, I guess.
1: Yeah. In our case, we kind of have these discussions with product and you kind of lay out the pros and cons. So it might be, uh, I'm making up an example here, but it might be something where when you, suppose you were to visit somebody's profile and it had the number of people who follow them and then you visit their profile Mm -hmm. a second time. Is it absolutely vital that the number of people follow them is the most up-to-date number or could that number be out of date by a few hours and you might decide no we absolutely want to be showing the most up-to-date value every time or you might say well no it's it's actually quite important to us that this page performs very well that it loads very quickly and we, we would be happy to take the hit on not showing the most up-to-date value for that number every time it's it's requested. So that's the kind of uh, judgment call you might make. Um, I believe it should be led by the product team because they're, or by product managers, I should say, because they're really the ones who are deciding um, how the user experience should feel.
0: That makes sense. Of course, my ego will stand for no delays, so you must update the <laughs> user account or follower account right away. But for everybody else's page, yeah, take your time. It's, it's fine, fine. Yeah. No, that, that makes Absolutely. sense, right? Because to a certain degree, right, if I'm looking at my Twitter profile and it says I have 10,000 followers and it goes from 10,000 to 10,004, people are still functionally going to say 10,000, right? Or yeah. 200 or whatever, right? So yeah, so that makes sense. And, and I can see that, You would want somebody who is more closely connected to the user experience, right? What they want, what they're seeing, what they're used to, what will improve their experience to be making that call as as opposed to tech people like us. Because I can tell you too, like as a developer, I tend to, unless they're people that are really a lot like me, right? So if I'm building something for other developers, I tend to make better judgment calls for user experience than if it's users like my mom right? Or my wife. And I've built apps, right? Intending it for to be just used for me or my wife or whatever. And I get the side eye and why'd you do that? Right? And so, yeah. yeah, that makes total sense to me, having that judgment call be made there. And then explaining to them, giving them enough information to make the judgment call, right? This will improve the performance this much, right? And then they can make a the call as to whether or not the trade-off is worth it. Because sometimes that's what it comes down to. Other times it's not, but yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know myself, I've built things that, um, you know, personal projects that function the way I wanted them to function. Mm-hmm. And so I was totally happy with it. And I put it in front of somebody else and they they have no idea how to use it. And you know, it's, it's yep. something that's been, you know my engineer brain says good enough. So yeah, I think it's better that these decisions are made by other people. Yeah. I know I pulled that. It's obvious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what kind of uh, measurable performance did this have, right? Because I'm assuming that the user experience, you know, maybe it loaded up a little faster for your users and maybe maybe that's something you're measuring. Or maybe it's, hey, we were able to scale much further because we didn't have to do all this work on the back end. Like, what what differences did you see? How did you know whether or not this was making the kind of difference you wanted?
1: Sure, so for this particular experiment, I deliberately chose an endpoint that I believe would be a good candidate for for using this particular type of caching. So I, I set up Charles Proxy on my phone and just-
0: Which is such a well-named app. proxy, I just have to say.
1: <laughs> it's definitely my favorite uh, proxy. Um,
0: That's my favorite name, anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I just literally browsed the app as a user. And then uh, after that session, went back and looked at what were all of the cases where I naturally viewed the same resource more than one time. And one that stood out was this endpoint of users forward slash ID forward slash recipes. And that's an endpoint on our API that returns all of the recipes for a given user. So that would come up if I were to look at your profile maybe have a look at one of your recipes, and then go back and look at your profile again. And uh, our mm-hmm. users tend tend not to publish new recipes every five minutes, um, so the odds of your profile not having changed between me visiting it once, looking at one of your recipes, and then going back to visit your profile again are pretty high. So I thought that was a reasonable use case for testing out this particular type of caching. Okay. Um, so beforehand, or let's say in the in the control group side of things, we were seeing response times of between two hundred and twenty and three hundred and ten milliseconds for this endpoint. Once we had implemented the conditional get request caching, we were seeing a fairly consistent around about the 95 millisecond mark for responses. So that's going from let's say 250 average ish to down to ninety-five milliseconds response time. And oh wow. And we saw that drop in, to begin with, about 25% of requests. But as the, you could say, as the caches started warming up, as more and more people would revisit those uh, same endpoints again, we see that climbing to about 30%. So by the time we'd concluded the experiment, about 30% of the requests to this endpoint, we saw that drop to 95 milliseconds. And the 95 milliseconds was actually a lot more consistent than the Two twenty to three ten range that we saw because the value that we were using to determine whether or not the resource had changed or not was something we're pulling out of Redis. So I think it didn't have mm-hmm. the same the the same sort of turbulent differences in in load time that a database will have. Right. So it was quite a significant. That's really
0: problem. interesting. Now, one other thing that I'm a little curious on because you you said you did this on the profile. I wouldn't imagine and. I could be totally wrong here, but I wouldn't imagine that that's a page that gets loaded a lot. Uh, The use case makes sense for for proving your case, but is this really a place where you're going to see that kind of throughput where it's really going to impact the overall performance of your application? Or did you go and pro- do this somewhere else and see a p- performance, you know, maybe on recipe or recipe list or something like that, where people are going to be loading it much more frequently?
1: It's a good question. If I'm honest, because this was an experiment, I I was seeking to cause as little disruption as possible. And so this right. seemed like a, a reasonable candidate for testing this feature without, uh, without, you know, breaking the recipe page or something, which would have been mm-hmm. uh, quite a, a serious thing if I had done. Um, yeah, that'd be a problem. Yeah. In saying that, though, I mean, we have over 100 million users a month and checking someone's profile is a fairly common thing for people to do. So it's it's not an endpoint that has zero traffic, put it that way.
0: So is there a plan then to roll this into some of those other areas?
1: Yes and no. I think our philosophy when it comes to performance is, again, that it should be product driven. And by that, I mean, Mm -hmm. there should be a a requirement to, to make something faster or to make it perform better. And so we have set out SLIs and SLOs and those are set at the, the team level. So if there's a, a particular team working on a particular feature, it's up to that team to decide whether something is is performing okay. well enough or not. So rather than just say, okay, we're going to apply this this new method across the board, it's, it's more of a reactive approach. And certainly this isn't the first thing that I would reach for if I were trying to improve the performance of an endpoint. Earlier you asked mm-hmm. about have we... Have we picked all the low-hanging fruit yet, I would still advocate for improving the database access, database reads and writes as much as possible before looking for something like client-side caching. So we haven't implemented this across the whole site, not by any means. It's something that we've communicated to the uh, the rest of the teams to say, if you need that extra performance boost, Here's something you can use, and here's how you would use it.
2: Just out of curiosity, how did you do that communication? You just like have like a lunch and learn kind of thing, or something? So
1: internally, we ha- we have something called SIGs, special interest groups, and they're just groups that uh, employees can join voluntarily. We have a, a Rails SIG, so uh, I presented it to the internal Rails developers with the results from the experiment, and uh, kind of communicated it through our local uh, through our internal communication as well. Okay. We're also encouraged to write blogs like this one that I've written as well so that we can not only communicate it with the team but communicate it externally as well.
2: Fantastic, fantastic. I um I also wanted to ask like a couple questions. So, I Sorry, sorry for being rapid me. fire that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't personally use Cookpad, but um I like pulled it up and I was like, "Huh, oh, what well, you know, like what kinds of, I was looking at it to see like what kinds of caching like I would see out of the box or I would think of out of the box and things like that. And so I was just kind of curious. I presume this isn't like the first thing that you reached for caching. Maybe it is, you know, and, and I'm interested in that too. I'm presuming you're using things like whatever, Rails nested, nested-doll caching and all that kind of stuff. Actually, I don't remember if we even call it that anymore because we, we just call it fragment caching now. Never mind. Um, I presume you use like fragment caching now, things like that, right?
1: as as kind of like maybe
2: like your front?
1: It's a good question. We use a variety. Like I said earlier, we don't have just a general cache that we apply to all things. We tend to apply caching where it's necessary. The challenge that we have with our API, though, is a lot of the content that we send to users is user specific. So for example, uh, when you download a bunch of recipes uh, at the recipes endpoint, that data will also include things that are specific to your relationship with those recipes. So for example, um, have you? we call it reactions. We have this feature called reactions where you can like with a love heart emoji or a yummy emoji. You can add recipes to your bookmarks. You can follow different users. And so all of these things are specific to you. And when you view the recipe's endpoint, it includes data that's specific to you. And because it's specific to you, we can't cache it generally because it means that uh, when I come to view that page, I'm going to be seeing data that's relevant to your relationship with uh, with the recipes. So in that particular sense, 100%. yeah, we're limited in how broadly we can apply caching. Um, although certainly there are aspects of the, the API and of the website that we do cache, uh, it tends to be more fragmented.
2: Absolutely. And that's that's actually why I specifically was asking about like fragment caching and things like that. But cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the that's part of the reason why I was curious to try client-side caching, because because so many of our the resources that we might want to cache are user-specific, it actually makes sense to cache it on the user's device in that way. Obviously, the two caches are not identical in how they function, but it certainly makes sense to have a, a sort of personal cache rather than a general cache if we have user-specific information like that.
2: Yeah, I think you addressed the question that I was actually asking, which was, do you use other tools alongside it, more or less, right, like other caching techniques and things? And it sounds
0: like you guys do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So are there other areas of uh, optimization you're looking into next, other techniques um, or anything like that?
1: Yeah, there's, there's an experiment that I've been uh, tinkering away with in my own time for a while now, I don't have any any results to share from it yet. So maybe that's something we could talk about another day. But I'll give you the description of you know what I'm thinking and how we're how I'm trying to implement this. Uh, we currently have quite a nested API. So when you when you pull down a list of recipes, the response will also include um, some comments that are related to that recipe, the the user data mm-hmm. for that recipe, and so, and that is another challenge that makes it difficult to cache because any one of those nested resources can also be updated and so the 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 rate of cache invalidation would be really high and what i wanted to look at was well now we have http2 and we have the ability to keep an open connection with the server and make multiple requests so what would it look like if we were to flatten out the structure of the api and then apply either server side caching or client-side caching, and then link to those resources within our API responses. So rather than sending a recipe that has the user's data nested within it, send a recipe that has the, the URL that relates to this user. And if that user has been cached, either client-side or service-side, then we make a very quick uh, request to pull it down, it's already cached on the device. So you can make multiple synchronous requests for all of these different associated users and have the data pulled out of local cache almost immediately. So the what I'm really looking at is by leveraging HTTP2's uh, multiple concurrent requests and caching, can we achieve either a similar or better performance to what we have currently? Awesome. I'm not sure yeah, that I
2: think HTTP2, I'm so much. stuff. Apologies.
1: So I, I just I wasn't sure if the the description made complete sense there but I cut you off John.
2: No you're good. I was just saying that I think that HTTP2 unlocks so much stuff, right? I think that so for example like I'm really excited about like things like import maps and some of these other technologies that like just straight up weren't really something that you could do previously because Because of basically like connection, you know, having too many connections basically yields performance problems, right? And now all of a sudden, we can make a bunch of small requests and potentially cache some or all of them, you know, depending on your use case, right? You can cache some or all of them and all of a sudden you get like a large boost in performance and that's actually pretty... It's a new way of thinking about things, and so yeah, I think that like we kind of have to like take a step back, reevaluate some of the things that we used to think were true, because all of a sudden there are some new techniques that we can use just because of that. So I think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, agreed. I also think again, it's been so long since I read it. I'm probably going to get fact checked on this, but I believe in the uh, in the original dissertation for REST, um, having this hyperlinked relationship between resources is actually part of the vision for rest and how rest should operate so in that sense you might say that the technology is finally catching up with the original concept for rest because i don't think we've really been able to to do this well until http 2
0: i wholeheartedly agree cool well i'm going to push this a little bit toward uh wrapping up if people want to connect with you gavin or see what you're
1: working on where do they find you the easiest place to find me is twitter I'm not the most frequent Twitter user, but you can definitely find me there. It's Maurice Gavin, M-O-R-R-I-C-E Gavin, G-A-V-I-N. I'm also on GitHub uh, at Bodacious and most other places online you can find me as Bodacious.
0: Awesome. I bet you compete for that handle.
1: Honestly, every new platform that opens, YouTube just (laughs) launched their new uh, choose your handle feature. And Bodacious was already taken by the time I got my Uh phone.
0: Oh, man. Well, we know who you are. (laughs) You're famous to us.
1: Thank you. Some people ask why Bodacious. Bodacious is actually a famous rodeo bull. It was one of the kind of big rodeo bulls in the 90s that everybody was too scared to ride and would really do quite a lot of havoc. That's where I got the the inspiration for Bodacious from. That's super awesome.
0: Yep. All right. Well, let's do some picks. John.
2: Okay. I've got... A few picks. They're actually going to be the same as my ones for yesterday because that's this is just what's currently on my mind. But I right. am here at the very end of RubyConf and I had a delightful time, which I did last year as well. And I've had a delightful time at the the number of Rails that I've gone to as well. But um, I only just started going to RubyConf last year and had a great time, learned some stuff, all that kind of stuff. At the same time there's also RubyConf Mini, which, you know, also happened around a similar time. So assuming they keep going on forward, um, also wanna mention that one as well. And then the other thing that I plan to pick today is I just got my new phone. I've had a Pixel 2 for a number of years now, and I've just been pushing it like way, way hard and she's finally dying. And so now I uh, just got a
0: Pixel 7 and I am very pleased with it. So that's uh, that's my other pick for today. Cool. Awesome. I'm going to throw in my picks next. I'm going to pick a board game called Meadow. This is one of the ones that I taught at the board game convention. And effectively what it is is you lay out the cards in a five by five square. And you have north, south, east, and west. And you have, so you start out with the south cards in the middle and then the east and west on the sides. I guess it's a four by five grid anyway. And then you have this uh, journey marker. And so you put your placement tiles telling on, on the row or the column on the grid, and then it has a number on it and you go that many in to get your card, right? And so you you place it to draw a card or you can place it flipped over in a slot and you can do one of a handful of actions that, that help you build up your uh, your stuff as you walk. So your, your character is theoretically walking on this journey. And so um, you pick up different things. So you can pick up trails and then you complete the trails. Or you can pick up different, so you start out with like different soils or leaves or plants. And then you, when you draw a card like an animal card, then you typically want to grab it and be able to place it by having the prerequisites in front of you in your meadow. And and that's it. That's the entire game. You play eight rounds, I think. You can play up to four players. And so, yeah, it's it's a pattern matching card game. And it it was pretty fun. Of the games that we played there that were my favorites, I think my favorites were Tenpenny Park and Dice Dice Miner, but this one was pretty fun. It's funny because the least favorite of the five or six games we taught was the one that had all the awards. But anyway, this one's one's fun, and if you're looking for a game you can play in 45 minutes or so, you know, with friends, stuff like that. It says 60 to 90 minutes. Maybe it does take a little longer, and it feels complicated the first time you play it, but once you kind of get the idea then the only agonizing you're doing is, am I grabbing a card that builds up toward other cards I'm probably going to see later? And so the first four rounds, you play with the south cards in the middle, and then you clear them off, and you play with the north cards in the middle. And the north cards are worth more points. And whoever has the most points at the end wins. That, that's it. That's the whole game. So Board Game Geek weights it out at 2.24, which is, again, fairly approachable for the average player. And I really, really enjoyed playing this one. So I'm, I'm going to pick that. And then I just want to shout out about the book club again. We're going to do clean architecture. I picked it, but I'm probably going to, after the first few weeks of the book club, I'm probably going to be asking people who are in the book club which book they want to do next, right? So if there's a particular book that you want to, to suggest, then we can do that. And then, yeah, we'll make a call and line that up before we start the next book in the book club in February. We're going to be doing calls every week. And then I'm also kicking off calls for top end devs for the membership, which you can still get for $39 right now. I'm planning on raising it pretty steadily until we get to over $100, just because I feel like it's worth it. We're doing two calls a week. We're going to cover different topics. Right now I'm looking because next year I know some folks are looking to get in and speak at conferences and stuff like that. So I'm looking to get a couple of friends to come in and, and talk about how to put together a good CFP, You know how to decide which conference to speak at. And then I, I have some friends who do other things like blog writing and stuff like that. And I'm also working on getting the Ruby meetup scheduled. I will probably get the language slash show specific meetups rolling in January. And then there's the Top End Devs conference in at the end of January. And that is all around growing your career and building your personal brand. And it's it's aimed at developers, specifically for developers. So we'll have people come in and talk about writing books or giving talks or speaking at meetups or, you know, organizing stuff online or blogging or podcasting or what have you. Just all the different ways that you can grow your personal brand. Uh, open source, we're going to have a, a handful of people talk about contributing to open source. But I, I want to open that up to people because I just don't see it really covered anywhere. And I want to make sure that everybody has the resources they need in order to get where they want. Let's see. I'm going to pick a book as well. I know I picked the game board games and then all my stuff, but I want to throw a few more things out. So Yellowstone has a new season out. So I'm going to pick Yellowstone again, because I've really enjoyed it up till now. And then a book series that I've enjoyed. I haven't gotten to it yet, because I've been reading another book series or listening to another book series on Audible. But the Michael Vay books has a new book out and so i'll i'll pick it again when after i've listened to it but i'm gonna throw both of those out there for people to pick and then i think that's it for right now i think those are all of my picks but i'll put links to all of those in the show notes gavin do you have some picks for us
1: i do i do because i work for cookpad and because i'm a major foodie myself the first one has to be food related so i've chosen i've picked uh, oh hook us up Comte cheese. Mm. I'm not sure if you've had this before. It's a French cheese. Mm-mm. I'm a huge cheese lover. I have tasted you know, quite a few different cheeses from Norwegian Bruno's to Egyptian Mish. And in my experience, Comte is the king of cheeses. It's nutty. It's got a caramelly side to it. It's got a fairly strong umami set, uh, flavor. I love it. So Comte cheese. Second pick nice. is the... The movie Amsterdam, it just came out recently. I think the critics have absolutely slated it. It's the new Christian Bale and John David Washington film. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of films that come out these days are quite derivative or they just follow the same format as every other film that's coming out just now. This one felt unique. It was funny. It was entertaining. The acting was fantastic. So yeah, highly recommend Amsterdam and last pick is a book I'm currently reading Sushi and Beyond uh, what the Japanese know about cooking it's by a guy called Michael Booth who's a kind of food writer and travel blogger and yeah basically i'm learning that uh, japanese food culture has dimensions to it that british food culture especially scottish food culture just do not have and this writer he traveled around japan experiencing the, the kind of finest and the most extreme edges of Japanese cuisine culture. And you wrote about it and I'm finding it absolutely fascinating. You know, the, the extent that some people go to just to get fresh wasabi and it must be grated on a, a shark skin wasabi grater. And all of these nuances that I just find absolutely fascinating.
0: Awesome. Yeah, my grandmother was French and I'd never heard of that cheese before. So <laughs> go figure. But uh, yeah. I I love the food that did remind me your movie pick did remind me of one other thing I was going to pick my wife and I went and saw Wakanda forever last week. And I heard people raving that it was better than Black Panther. It wasn't. But considering that Chadwick Boseman actually died and so they had to come up with a storyline to continue that thread, I thought they did an excellent job putting it all together. So uh, I'm going to pick that, too. It it was it was a good movie. I wasn't disappointed when I went and saw it. So, all right, we'll we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming, Gavin and John. And until next time, folks, Max out.